Welcome to Crosswords, the podcast about practical Christianity. What does it look like to walk in Jesus' footsteps? How do I live in a culture hostile to godliness? These are questions that we will answer as we get our minds and heart on Jesus. Good afternoon, everyone. What a joy, what a joy. Thank you, Mark, for helping us put our minds in the right place of thankfulness. This was a bit of a lesson that was difficult to put together, trying to bring together all the different things that Jesus went through right after the garden and right before his crucifixion. There are some things to note about this whole process, these trials that Jesus endured. The title of the lesson, Behold the Man. This was the exclamation Pilate made somewhat in defense of Jesus when the Jews handed him over to him. It was one of the many things that we're going to find interesting in this account of Jesus' trials in the gospel records. We're going to do a quick review of the process of the trials. It's going to sound very historical. I hope it's of interest to you. Then we're going to focus in on one of the telling conversations that Jesus had with Pilate. We're going to focus on two conversations that John recorded for us. Then we're going to sum it all up and speak about three lessons and applications from all of this. First, let's take a look at a map of how this all went about. We got Jesus being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is all the way to your right. There's a little circle out there where the garden is right outside the city walls of Jerusalem. So that's where we're picking up the account. Then he was brought to Annas and Caiaphas. And I'm going to get into who they are in a little bit. But that's the first place they were brought. he was brought to. And it was dark. It was night. Uh, we don't know what time, but it was kind of like very, very early in the morning, maybe one, maybe two o'clock in the morning, somewhere like that. Remember, Jesus had been praying almost all night. And so they take him to the house of Annas and Caiaphas. And then they attempt to make a judgment before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish court, like the Jewish Supreme Court. And it was a very unfair trial that they had for Jesus. And then they tried him again in the morning to kind of make it seem more appropriate. Oh, this is the official, but they had already passed judgment on him. Then since they wanted to condemn him to death, they had to take him all the way to Pilate, to the official Roman court, but Pilate eventually said, no, he doesn't, he's not under my jurisdiction. So he sends him to Herod and Herod happened to be in Jerusalem at the time. And then Herod was not interested, sending him back to Pilate. And then that's when Pilate uh, arrests him. There's a whole procedure of things that goes on, which will, I will cover. And then he's taken to Golgotha, which is on the other side, the last uh, place that he goes to Golgotha to be crucified. So basically, to sum it up, Jesus first had a set of Jewish trials, and then he had a set of Roman trials. So the Jewish trials, we can sum it up in three points here. First, he was prosecuted by Annas. The mob that arrested Jesus took him to Annas. We read about that in John chapter 18, verse 13. Who is Annas? Annas was Caiaphas' father-in-law. Who was Caiaphas? <laughs> Caiaphas was the actual high priest that year. But it was really Annas, though. Annas was the real high priest. But 
He was removed from office by the Roman procurator Valerius Gratus. I guess he didn't really like him. Uh, and so he removed him from office, but that doesn't typically happen in Jewish law. You can't be removed from office. So because the Romans removed him, they kind of like had to elect another one, probably a puppet of, of the Roman uh, governors at that time. So that was the only time in the history of the Jews that they had two high priests because they really didn't want to get rid of the other one either. So they looked to both of them. And one of them happened to be the father-in-law of the other. So uh, the high priest is a lifetime office. So Annas, since he was still alive, he was still considered a high priest. So they took him to Annas. Then Caiaphas, who didn't live too far from where Annas was, probably around the corner. They think that probably their yards met together. So they went from one house into the other uh, to interrogate Jesus on these things, which the high priest wanted, had been waiting to do this for a long time. They wanted to get a hold of Jesus and see who he was and why did he teach these things. So they both interrogate Jesus and they, they took him before the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin, as I said before, was the Jewish Supreme Court. That's where people were tried for crimes or any other thing. But this was a nighttime session. So it was considered an illegal meeting. It's what we would call today a kangaroo court. What's a kangaroo court? It's a court where there is no due process. You're guilty and we're going to condemn you. It doesn't really matter what you did or not. You're the scapegoat and we're going to condemn you. So there's no due process. They use false witnesses to try to condemn you. And you were the fellow who unluckily got into their targets and they want to take you and condemn you. So they drew up a whole bunch of false witnesses to appear and to accuse Jesus. One of the ones who was present there accused Jesus of wanting to tear down the temple. So that was considered to be a traitor to tear down the temple of God. So within all this interrogation, Jesus does confirm before the Sanhedrin that he is the son of God. And that's all they needed to hear. At that point, they condemned him to die. At that point, also, Jesus is spit on. He is struck on the head with staffs. He is slapped on the, on the face during this time. This is also when Peter's denial occurs. He, he denies Jesus three times during this time before the Sanhedrin at night, the illegal session. But then he's brought again before the Sanhedrin Friday, very early in the morning. We read about that in Mark chapter 15, the whole chapter, starting from verse 1. So it is daytime now. So this is an official meeting of the Sanhedrin. And basically what they're doing here is seeking confirmation to pass along the condemnation that they already decided to do the night before. So they weren't looking for any votes. They weren't looking for any new witnesses. They weren't giving Jesus an opportunity for him to defend himself. Hey, you've already condemned. We're just seeking the approval of the whole council here so that we can make it official and so that we can move on with these things. Jesus is denied the opportunity to present his case. And the Jews, they knew they could not pass sentence without Roman approval. They wanted the death penalty. They wanted Jesus to die. They did not have the power under Roman law to carry out the death penalty. So they had to seek the Roman approval for that, which is why now Jesus is going to go through three stages of Roman trials. They kind of drew up some political charges to bring up before Pilate because they knew Pilate was not going to agree with their assessment. 
of, hey, he declared himself to be the son of God. Pilate was going to be like, what? <laughs> so they had to kind of come up with a way of presenting it to Pilate so that it could appear as if Jesus was either trying to usurp Roman authority or forbid people to pay taxes, something that would interest Pilate. So that's what they had to bring up before Pilate. So next we go through the Roman trials, which take place in three stages as well. First, he's brought up before Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea and Samaria at the time. And his purpose there was to keep the peace, make sure there's no rebellion. And this was a really, a real hot zone in all of the Roman Empire. Nobody wanted to be the governor of Judea and Samaria. But Pilate, uh, he drew the short straw and he uh, was picked to, to be there. And his purpose was to keep the peace and to collect any taxes. As judge of the land, he also approved of any executions that had to uh, be done. So Pilate goes out. When you read this account in the Gospels, you're going to see that he goes out to meet the Jews. And he's always coming in, he's going in, and he's going out. What was that all about? Why weren't they all together in one place? Well, that's because the Jews did not want to enter the praetorium where Pilate was, where he uh, executed judgment because they didn't want to be defiled by entering into Gentile territory. Remember, this was right before the Passover. And since they wanted to celebrate the Passover, they said, oh, we don't want to be defiled by going into a Gentile land. As if they, I mean, and you can see the hypocrisy right there. Yeah, you're ready to execute an innocent man. You're ready to condemn an innocent man and not let him have due process, but you don't want to get defiled by entering into a Gentile area. A big hypocrisy. And Pilate could read right through that. He's trying to get Jesus off as we read through this. Pilate's first evasion to condemn Jesus was when the Sanhedrin, the high priest, they bring Jesus to him in John chapter 18, verses 29 through 31. Pilate is, well, what's your accusation? What, what are you accusing this guy for? They thought, oh, well, we don't have to tell you. We're bringing him before you and we condemn him. So, you know, he needs to be executed. And Pilate was like, no, that's not how we do things. What's your accusation? What are you accusing him of? And then when they tell him, he, he goes back and says, well, you try him by your own law. This has, this has to do with your law, not with our law. So you try him. But they wanted him to be executed. So they present to him a tougher case. Luke brings this up in Luke chapter 23, verse 2. They say, well, he's a troublemaker. He tries to create a riot among the people, which was a big deal, by the way, in Roman times. He also tells them he forbids people to pay taxes to the emperor. That was another claim they bring up before Pilate. And thirdly, which was true, probably the only true claim, is he claims to be the king. That was probably the only real accusation. Uh, and of course, in them trying to bring that, he's, they're trying to set up, well, he's trying to usurp Caesar's role as king. And that was a big deal, too, before the Romans, right? But... Pilate kind of sees through their little scheme. He knows that they're jealous. And as you read through the text of these accounts, it'll actually say that Pilate knew that they were bringing Jesus to him because they were jealous of him somehow. He was able to detect that. And so Pilate and Jesus speak. Pilate wants to get to know Jesus a little better. He wants to know what's going on. So we read this first conversation he has with Jesus in John 18, 33 through 38. It says, Pilate went back into the palace. Remember, he's going in and out because the Jews didn't want to come in. They were supposed to come in, but they wanted to stay out because they didn't want to be defiled. 
So Pilate is coming in and out, in and out. So he went back into the palace, called for Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, did you think that of yourself or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own people and the chief priest handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom doesn't belong to this world. If my kingdom belonged to this world, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. My kingdom doesn't have its origin on earth. So Pilate asked him, so you are a king. Jesus replied, you're correct in saying that I am a king. I have been born and have come into the world for this reason, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to me. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After Pilate said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I don't find this man guilty of anything. So you can see that Pilate, it seems like he's trying to help Jesus. So it does tell us something that they didn't just do this on a whim. Apparently, they really tried to investigate things as best as they could. And Pilate doesn't seem to be uh, a pawn here of anybody. He's really trying to get down to the bottom of things. It seems right on the outside that he's trying to find exactly what is he guilty of. I'm not just going to try. I'm not just going to condemn an innocent man. He really wanted to get to know what was going on. It seems he's trying to help Jesus. And Jesus, what he's doing here, even though Jesus is the man standing on trial, he's the condemned man. He's the man who should be trying to be saving his own life. Jesus is really just providing Pilate an opportunity for him to come to the side of truth by speaking about the truth, by speaking about his kingdom. He's offering him a chance to change his life, to change the course of his life. Pilate's verdict, I find no guilt in Jesus. But the Jews are all stirred up by this. They don't want to hear that. They don't want to accept this verdict. And Pilate, he's in a tough position. Let me uh, be clear. I'm not trying to defend Pilate here. I'm just trying to provide a picture of perhaps what was his mental, his emotional condition. I want you to relate to someone being in this tough position between a rock and a hard place. You know, you know that these people are jealous. You know, they're going to condemn an innocent man. But on the other hand, you don't want to riot because that's where, the, that's where it was going. He didn't want to antagonize the Jews because he doesn't want to cause a riot and be blamed for it and be removed from being governor of Judea and Samaria, even though he didn't like it. But it must have been a nice position for him because that's where he was. He had already declared Jesus innocent. So he doesn't want to go back on his word. So this is also a smart move on his part. He's like, well, I don't want to double speak, say that he's innocent and then say, say that he's guilty because that's not going to look for, good for him either. This is a political situation as well for Pilate. So he comes up with a plan. He passes the buck, as we typically see, right? <laughs> People do. He finds out that Jesus is a Galilean. So lo and behold, Herod is the king of Galilee. That's his jurisdiction. And Herod happened to be in Jerusalem. So he sends him to Herod. And that's where we go to the second stage. Uh, it's a good political move by Pilate. He wants to network with Herod. Apparently, Herod was very, very influential. When you read about the history behind this, Herod was, was much more influential than Pilate himself. He was much more well-known. 
And Herod was glad to see Jesus. Herod always wanted to see Jesus. He didn't want to hear Jesus. He wasn't interested in what Jesus had to say. He just wanted a magic show. He wanted Jesus to perform some kind of miracle for him. He wanted to be entertained. He had heard all these things that Jesus was doing, and that's what he wanted to see. But as you know from the accounts, when Jesus is before Herod, he doesn't say a thing. He remains silent. And so Herod doesn't like that, and Herod decides to mock him. And we read about that in Luke chapter 23, verse 11, where they put a cape on him, they put a mock crown, they pay homage, they bow down, and, and then he sends Jesus back to Pilate. And after this, we read in the accounts of the gospel that Herod and Pilate became friends after this. What will Pilate do with Jesus? We do sing a song, don't we, at times, what will you do with Jesus, which includes parts of this account, because Pilate didn't want to deal with Jesus and sends him away, hopefully to get this off his back. But Jesus keeps coming back to him. So the question is, what will you do with Jesus? What's Pilate going to do with Jesus? He can't ignore him. Frankly, who can ignore Jesus? Weren't the Jews and the Sanhedrin, all of them trying to get Jesus away from them? Wasn't that an attempt of what they were doing, trying to ignore Jesus, trying to get him to go away somehow because they didn't want to hear his message? They didn't want to see him? At one point, they even wanted to kill Lazarus, as if killing Lazarus would undo the miracle Jesus did that raised him from the dead. They just really didn't want any reminder of who Jesus really was before him. And that's how some people are in our society today, right? They want to eliminate any trace of them being reminded of Jesus. Why? Why is that? After all, Jesus came to die for us, to love us. Why would somebody want to ignore Jesus? Why would somebody want to pass, pass him along or undo the things that he was trying to do? That really just speaks to our guilty conscience right there. Pilate pronounces Jesus not guilty again. This is the third time Pilate declares Jesus not guilty before the Jews. We read about that in Luke 23, verse 16. However, he adds something else this time. He proposes a punishment. He's trying to negotiate with the Jews. He doesn't want to kill Jesus. He doesn't want to give in totally. So he's trying to come to a consensus with the Jews. What if I punish him for you? What if I teach him a lesson? I'll have him flogged, and then we'll set him free. You know, we'll teach him a lesson. What do you think? And he's caught between a rock and a hard place. This tells me that, you know, the guy had a conscience. He wasn't just trying to do their bidding and then move on with the day. He apparently had a conscience. And plus, we're going to read later on that his wife comes out and tells him that she had a dream about Jesus, and that scared him <laughs> even more, put the, a little bit of the fear of God in him uh, when he found that out. So this scourging that Pilate proposes, we can call it a scourging, we can call it a whipping, we can call it a flogging, and we know what that entails, right? I mean, that's one of the things that we share with other people in the love of God study. We've gone over that so many times. Uh, if you watch the movie, The Passion of the Christ, very graphically, it shows you what a scourging involves. And so when we read about this account and this scourging that Pilate proposed to the Jews, 
If that really happened, we don't know if it happened or not. We know that he was eventually scourged, but he might have gone through that twice is what I'm telling you here. When we try to reconcile the historical records, this scourging that he proposes, and remember, he's doing so in, in view of releasing Jesus. So it was not a scourging prior to crucifixion. We're talking about two different things, because later when Jesus is condemned and he's going to be crucified, that entailed being flogged first, right before the crucifixion. So what I'm trying to tell you here is that he might have gone through a scourging twice. One that is a light scourging, sort of like as a punishment, because Pilate wanted to set him free. But then when he was condemned, he went through the more severe one prior to crucifixion. That's something that I learned in uh, researching this out. And it's at this point, after that flogging, that Jesus is mocked by the soldiers, of, as we read in John chapter 19, verses 2 and 3, where they place a crown of thorns on his head. They put the purple robe on him. They slap him on the face. They beat him with the sticks, and they mock him. And it's at this point, after he receives this light scourging, and the soldiers have mocked him, he has the crown of thorns, that Pilate goes outside again, and he tells the Jews, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I don't find this man guilty of anything. And Jesus went outside. He was wearing the crown of thorns and the purple cape. And Pilate said to the Jews, behold, the man. And he presents the king, the man before them. What is he trying to say? Look, here's the man. What is he trying to say with that expression? To me, when he says that, he's just trying to say he's just a man. You're scared of this guy? Somehow this guy intimidates you? He bleeds just like anybody else. He is a man after all. And look, I think he's learned enough. I think he's suffered enough. Look at him. He suffered enough. He just saw Jesus as an innocent man caught up in the politics of the wicked. But the Jews saw Jesus as a traitor to their faith, as an imposter, as a blasphemer. That same man was looked upon by the disciples as the son of God. So when Pilate says, behold the man, we got three different groups seeing three different things right before them. One of them saw an imposter king. The other one saw the true king of Israel. And the others saw just a poor guy who got caught up in the politics of the day. Now, at this point, Pilate's plan backfires. He really just wanted to be done with Jesus and said, okay, that's enough. Let's all go home. But the Jews really wanted Jesus that they were not backing down. And it's at this point that the Jews said, he claims to be the son of God. Some of them told Pilate. So that apparently put a little bit more of the fear of God in him. Look at what it says here. The Jews answered Pilate, we have a law. And by that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. Now, when Pilate heard them say that, he became more afraid than ever. So even though Pilate is not a believer, he believed in something <laughs> because that alarmed him. 
And he went into the palace again and asked Jesus, where are you from? He's kind of trying to dig a little more into Jesus' background. But Jesus didn't answer him. So Pilate said to him, aren't you going to answer me? Don't you know that I have the authority to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered Pilate, you wouldn't have any authority over me if it hadn't been given to you from above. That's why the man who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. And we're going to examine that statement a little later. What does he mean? The man who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. When Pilate heard what Jesus said, he wanted to what? He wanted to free him more than ever. But the Jews shouted. Here's where it gets very antagonistic. If you free this man, you're not a friend of the emperor. Anyone who claims to be a king is defying the emperor. So they're really antagonizing him at that point. What was Pilate going to do with Jesus? He knows it's because of jealousy. They want to get rid of him, Matthew 27, 18. But he has one more trick up his sleeve. And he presents another man to them. See, it was customary during the Passover to release, to free a prisoner of the Jews. So it's at this point that Pilate presents Jesus and Barabbas. And he says, should I crucify your king? But, you know, what about this guy, Barabbas? He's, he's a bad guy. He's a murderer. I mean, I know for a fact that all the things they accuse him of is true. He had no sympathy for Barabbas. But Jesus, who do you want me to free to you? What about Jesus? He's not guilty. He's innocent. Pilate really wants to free him. Or what about Barabbas? And you know, I've heard many times the comparison made how we are like Barabbas. We are the guilty ones. We're the ones that should have been condemned. We're the ones that should have been picked on. But instead, Jesus dies in our place. The crowd shows who their real father is that day by asking for a known murderer to be released to them. It's at this point that we get some divine intervention. And you have to wonder what God's intent is here. Because God sends Pilate's wife over to him. And she tells her husband of a dream she had. We read about this in Matthew 17, 19. And this dream, plus knowing or having heard that Jesus is the son of God, you know, Pilate is scared. And does he realize that he's at a crucial point here in the history of humanity? Does he know where he stands in this decision that he's about to make? I mean, this is a big crossroads. Not just for him, for the whole, but for the whole of humanity. And you have to wonder how God, what is God trying to do here? Is he trying to give Pilate an opportunity? Is he trying to give Pilate a, a sign? Hey, do the right thing. If you like this podcast, please show your support by clicking on the support link on my Anchor FM profile. You will find the link listed in the description of the podcast on your favorite podcast app. With your support, I will continue to produce authentic Christian content as the Lord allows me to do.
Some of you might say, well, wasn't it God's will for him to be crucified? Yeah, but even if it's that so, God always gives choices to all those involved because he wants them to make a choice about these things. And I'm going to talk about that a little more at the end as well. Those are among the lessons that we're learning as we're reading through these accounts. God's will will be accomplished regardless of your choice. You can either choose to go along with his will or you can choose to go against it, but his will will get done. And it's smart for us to learn through all these accounts that we want to make choices that end us right next to God, not against him, or else we're going to be run over. We're going to be plowed right over. But God gives us choices. So before Paul had, uh, Pilate had told them, behold the man, now he's going to say something else. The time was about six o'clock in the morning on the Friday of the Passover festival. So it's Friday. Pilate said to the Jews, look, here's your king. Look at that testimony. First he said, look, here's the man. But now this time, he's saying, here's your king. As if he's sympathetic. Should I crucify your king? Then the Jews shouted, kill him, kill him, crucify him. The chief priest responded, the emperor is the only king we have. Now about that remark, that's a very telling remark. For the chief priest to say that the emperor is the only, I mean, they hated the Romans, but yet they were driven to the point in their jealousy and in their wickedness. To say such a thing, horrible thing. And not just to say that, but to then add, when Pilate is washing his hands in Matthew 27, 24, and 25, and he says, look, I'm not going to be guilty of this. This is your choice. And you know what they said? They say, may his blood be on us and our children. Another telling exclamation that their wickedness and their passions had gone beyond reason, that they would say something like that. I mean, they sealed their fate at that point. And notice all the opportunities, all the things. I mean, this trial of Jesus is the most detailed account. The trial and the crucifixion or the passion of the Christ is one of the most detailed historical happenings of mankind. Word for word, event for event. And it's in all four of the Gospels. All four of them tell and in as much detail. So when you put the four of them together, you get an intrinsic amount of detail between all four accounts. And there is no other account in history that is as detailed as this one. As if God were trying to say and teach us something about what happened that Friday and that Saturday and that Sunday. If anything, what happened on Friday is even more detailed than what happened on Sunday, more so. Now, us looking back, we know that what God's will was throughout all this. I mean, this, the stage is set, isn't it? For the Lamb of God to be given up as a sacrifice of atonement for our wicked disobedience, for our sinful thoughts. We are Barabbas, guilty as sin. 
no matter how you try to justify it. There was no way out, no way out, except by the way of the innocent one, we named Jesus, the man, the king, who willingly took up our punishment so that now we can live forever. There is a lot to be thankful for, like Mark said, a lot just in that realization. There is no forgiveness for us except for the way of forgiveness created by Jesus. He's the only true one. And it's by his death, burial, and resurrection that he opened up a new and living way for us to tread through. But we have to recognize and own that guilt. I'm not saying feel guilty. That's not what I'm saying. We're not people in the world who go around moping, oh, I'm so guilty, I'm so bad. No, quite the opposite. We're free and forgiven. But we are so because we, rec we recognize how wicked we have been and that there is still wickedness in there. But we're not chained to it anymore. We're free from it. That's the beauty. That's the thanksgiving. And how do we do that? We have to take that first step of obedience and identify with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Coming into contact with that forgiving and atoning blood of Christ that was spent 2,000 years ago. We come into contact when we're immersed in that watery grave of baptism for the forgiveness of sins. That's how Jesus squares away our disobedience and our faults and our wickedness. So by this act of God's mercy, his mercy seem much more merciful than ever. They are greatly amplified, but his judgment against those who ignore this is going to be worse than ever unless they change their mind, unless they change their ways. So what are some three applications as we went through these trials? I know I quickly went over them in a hurry. What are three things that we can sum up about them? Well, I think the first thing we can say about this is that many choices are offered here, aren't there? I mean, time after time, opportunity after opportunity, for the Jews, for the chief priests, for the Sanhedrin, opportunities for even the disciples, opportunities for Pilate, for Herod, for everybody involved. They are presented to all groups. What would you have decided if you were Pilate? What would have you decided if you were in the crowd? or if you were among the disciples. The fact is that every single day we're presented with choices. And we don't know that the choices that we're making at that time are going to be leading us to a humongous crossroads. Just like that day, neither Pilate nor Herod nor the disciples understood the crossroads they found themselves in. It was a major decision. It's important to be awake and to understand the stakes in the decisions that you are going to make because God gives you plenty of warning. He's a loving father and he's going to warn you through his word. He's going to warn you through the church. He's even going to use other people to try to tell you if you're headed in the wrong direction. Listen, listen, and don't fall the way that the Jews and Pilate did on that day. Don't choose out of fear. Choose out of fear of God. <laughs> That's the good fear to choose. But not out of fear of people. Just remember the spiritual law. You reap what you sow. Once you've made a choice, don't complain of the results that you're reaping because of the bad choice you made. 
That's a spiritual law. There is no such thing as karma, by the way. I know that's a popular a belief out there. But there is one who judges the living and the dead. He is karma. <laughs> and you will reap what you sow. Second lesson, who has the greater sin? This is the second application that we could derive from these trials of Jesus. Jesus said, Caiaphas had the greater sin. He told Pilate, the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Greater even than Pilate's. What does this tell us? Well, this is all about responsibility. God has given each of us different measures of responsibility. Sometimes he does it by different talents and abilities that he gives you. Sometimes he does it by different responsibilities according to the faith, according to the measure of faith that you may have. And he gives you these things so that you can make the right choices with them. This is closely tied with choices. God equips you. If you have a lot of talents, if you're the 10 talent guy, then guess what? God's going to demand more from you. If you're the one talent guy, and if you don't use that talent right because you made the wrong choices, even what you have will be taken away. That's the what you reap is what you sow. You may have power. You may have leverage. God extended these things to you because you make big decisions in your household, in your company, in the church. Well, you must use that leverage and that power to do right for others, to do right for the people who may not want to speak up for themselves, for the people who can't speak up for themselves, for the disadvantaged people, for the ostracized people. Are you looking out for them? Amongst the choices that God has given you, amongst the power and the leverage God has given you. Are you looking out for the widows, for the orphans, and for the disenfranchised? Because that's who God is. There's a quote that many like from the Marvel Universe. With great power comes great responsibility. Well, Stan Lee didn't come up with that. That was in the Bible long ago. <laughs> don't lose what you've been given because of wrong choices because of selfish choices if you're a boss be kind be kind to the people who work for you show respect especially for those again who might be disenfranchised show Respect and fear of God, who is over all, because he is your boss. If it's within your power to do so, do good and keep the peace. My third point here, no excuses. Excuses don't change your guilt. Pilate tried to get away from his guilt by making this show. Hey, I'm washing my hands. It's not on me, it's on you. Well, guess what? That didn't work before God. Because God gave him the power to choose and do the right thing. Washing your hands of guilt doesn't work in real life. Ask the people who've tried to do that and who are in therapy for a very long time because guilt doesn't wash away unless it's by the blood of Christ. Sometimes you may use circumstances to justify your decisions the way Pilate did, but that won't work either. You reap what you sow. Just be understanding 
Be kind, be ultra gracious. You don't know what other people are going through. And it's always best to err on the side of mercy than on the side of judgment. Because scripture says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Always. So it's always good to carry that out. I'm not saying be a mat. I'm not saying be a pushover. Because that's not what Jesus was. You be stern with the people who require sternness. With the lawbreakers, the immoral, the ungodly. Yeah, be stern. Be serious. But be gracious to the weak. Be gracious to those who are oppressed. Because you are under God's watchful eye. Jesus died to redeem you. Make your life count for something. God bless you.